0: Good morning, everybody. Man, if that doesn't make you want to go jump off a cliff, nothing will. Hey, uh, how many of you know what froking is? Raise them lot hand. Let me see. A few of you know what froking is. I promise it's an appropriate word. Froking stands for faith. Stroking, froking. I learned this phrase when I went uh, whitewater rafting the first time. It was 1998. It was at a church in southern Indiana, and um, they were going on a men's trip, and they said, hey, do you want to go? We had an open spot. Sure. So we went out to go whitewater rafting. Now, when we got there, uh, the the guide started telling us all these rules. I have a hard time paying attention to rules sometimes, so I'm zoning out. But he got my attention when he said, now, this is really important. We had somebody die recently on the river. Got my attention. What do you have to say, sir? Whatever you want to know. And he said, It is crucial that you do everything I tell you to do, when I tell you to do it, and exactly how I tell you to do it, even if it doesn't make sense. And I thought, Well, that's it? And how hard is that? And then he went on to describe for us later on on the trip that we were going to hit various kinds of rapids, and I guess they have a rating scale or at least this place did, one through five. Five was like really intense. We weren't going to hit any of those that day. He said a two, you kind of go over it, and, you know, you notice it, not a real big deal. A three is where you start to feel it. A four can be pretty intense, and we would likely hit one or two fours that day, depending on how the river was running. Okay, great. So it was a lot of fun getting in the river, swimming around, doing all kinds of fun things, little rapids here and there. And then we come up on the spot. Before we get there, he says, now this is a spot where somebody recently died. I always wondered if he was serious. But his tone and everybody else's tone and the other rafts told me either they all pretend like it's serious or this is really serious. So I'm a little bit anxious. And what happened was there were two uh, rapids back to back. And uh, I don't, one was like a three and a half, and one was a four, somewhere in that boat. But because of where they were located, I guess it created kind of like this vortex spinning thing in the middle. And we get to there, and he says, all right, now you got to do exactly what I tell you to do. And so we literally go, and I didn't know this. So some of this I'm telling you it happened afterwards. When I saw the video, I went, oh, that's what happened? You don't know. There's somebody on the side you know, of a rock, and they're taking the video. But here's what happened. So we went forward over the rapid, and that was intense enough. But then the vortex sucked us backwards. And when it sucked us backwards, it folded the raft in half like almost completely, not joking, and I'm in the middle, and i got my foot wedged inside the raft, if you've ever done this, you know what I'm talking about, and I'm froking. He is telling us, and I don't remember the names of the sides of the raft, and he's like, on this side, whatever, right side, or side I was on, stroke, stroke, and I'm going like this, and I'm hitting nothing. I'm literally hitting air. And I'm doing this. That's why it's called froking. It's like, this is doing nothing. And I stopped and I looked back to see if he, I was understanding him right. And he's like, go, go, go. And he's yelling. So I'm stroking again. All of a sudden, I'm not hitting anything, but I'm froking. And all of a sudden, we hit the water with a sudden impact. And all of a sudden, my paddle hits the water. And the point is, if you don't froak, then when you hit the water, you never pull through. In the video... I'm out of my seat a little bit, like I'm up in the air going, <laughs> 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 and he is totally out of the air with his paddle in the air, like, a, like a uh, I don't know, an adrenaline junkie going, woo! <laughs> he is literally out of the boat, off the seat, literally in the air, came back down in the boat. We pulled through, we went to the next rapid. It was awesome. It was the talk of the next week. My heart is pounding. But here's the thing. So there's a point to all this. Sometimes what we're going to talk about today will make no sense to you whatsoever. It won't add up. You'll be thinking, why are we doing this? Is it even working? Is it even taking effect? Is it even making a difference? Am I just wasting my time and my energy? And I'm telling you right now, when all else fails, froke. If you get nothing else out of today, you can walk away and say, what would you get out of today, honey? I'm supposed to froke. I don't know exactly what it means, but am just supposed to keep doing the right thing because the right thing, in the end, pans out. Now, before we get into today, let me go to what Jesus said. So Jesus is with us. Again, I keep talking about this section of Scripture because I love it. You could memorize this Scripture. John 13 through 17 is just unbelievable. And here we get to John 13, and Jesus gathers the disciples. He's just about to go to the cross, and it's one long conversation with Jesus. It's like famous last words before he dies on the cross. And he's telling them all these things. And one of the things he says to them, he says, guys, you know how I was with you? Go be like that with everybody else. And here's what he says, John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. Now just stop there before we go on. What Jesus is trying to get to here, he's like, look, this is going to get hard. It's going to get uncomfortable. It's going to get uneasy. And when in doubt, froke. Just keep doing the right thing. Well, what's the right thing, Jesus? Love. So I would just say it's a big idea today. If you aren't sure about Jesus, you need to know this. Above anything else, of all the things that Jesus is, he's love. But he's not love how media defines it. He's not love necessarily how your parents or the teachers at your kid's school or Dr. Phil defines it. Jesus defines love through his life. He defined love by the way he acted and treated other people. And he says this is a new command, not because the Old Testament. The Old Testament said a lot of things about love. But what Jesus did was truly radical. See, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people were led out of exile, out of slavery in Egypt, and then into the Promised Land. And that was the prototype or the example of what we get into in the New Testament. And even in that, Jesus, or sorry, God, through Moses, told them, look, you're going to be a generous people. You're going to take care of those. You're going to literally leave grain in the field so that people can be cared for. You're literally going to care for the foreigners among you. And he had these list of rules. We call it the Old Testament laws. He had these list of rules and do's and don'ts of what love looks like. But the New Testament is new. It's an even more extreme version of morality. It's an even more extreme version of truth. It's an even more extreme version of grace. To the point where literally Paul tells us at one point, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is huge for where we're going today. Because Jesus didn't wait for you to put the pieces of your life together for him to come. Jesus didn't wait for you to fix it and become the best version of yourself. Jesus came while you were broken and lost and in need of a savior. And he chose to love you anyway. And even though many people Jesus came to love and serve wouldn't believe in him, kept testing him, kept pushing him, weren't sure about him. He just kept loving them anyway. So then he says, just as I have loved you, if you want to be my disciples, go love each other. And then look at what he says next, the very next verse, verse 35. He says, and your love for one another will prove to the world you are my disciples. So a talk just recently about evangelism as the goal of the church to literally share the good news of Jesus with everybody. And the question is always, how do I do that? How do I do that? And here's the thing, if you would just do this, this one thing, the world will know. If you will love others inside these walls, the world will know. And part of the way they'll know is because your love inside these walls will spill over, will pour over into their lives as they come in contact with other people in this church. And they can be the witness for the church. So literally, people, when they leave here, go, man, I, look, my, I went through this thing in my marriage. I went through this thing in my job. I lost this family member to death. So-and-so has cancer. And you know who was there for me the most? My church. And people start to go, man, who does that? Who loves like that? And you could say, wow, my church, Jesus. That's why we have this phrase here at Kingsway. We use this often. You may have heard it a couple times in this series, but Kingsway, a place where the lost and the broken are transformed by the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ in us to each other that makes the world take a look and say, I want to be a part of something like that. I want to be a part of a group of people who don't judge me for what I've done, but embrace me, but won't leave me there. I want to be a part of a group of people who literally look at the world and say, what do I have to offer it, and then begin to engage it in a way that makes a difference, a lasting impact, in it's life. And what we want to do right now is take a look at how the New Testament played that out. So we're going to be living in Acts chapter 4 and then Acts chapter 5 today. One of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible by far. And uh, I wanted to get away from it, but I couldn't. We couldn't just skip over it and go to 6. You would have wondered what I was doing. So I got to talk about it. But we're going to start in Acts 4. So to bring you up to speed, in case this is your first Sunday here, welcome. We're going to learn about Froking. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells the disciples... I'm sending God to live inside you. That's the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower you to be bold. Acts chapter 2 Peter speaks up when only 50 days earlier he was running for his life lying about knowing Jesus and now 50 days later because the Holy Spirit is in him and he's bold by the resurrection he stands up and he preaches a powerful message about Jesus and he's not worried about what anybody thinks anymore. Acts chapter 3 Peter and John they're on their way to the temple and they get thrown in prison because they're preaching about Jesus. They heal a lame man a crippled man who've been crippled for about 40 years and they healed him and so everybody's listening and at the end of that story we left off last week they are threatened by the religious leaders the religious leaders are often the bad guys in the text maybe not dramatically different today but the religious leaders are the ones who say to peter and john if you don't stop talking about jesus We're going to throw you in prison or do worse. And Peter and John say, what do you want us to do? We have to obey God, not you. They gather together at the end of three. where we left off last week, they gather together and they pray as a body of believers. And they just pray, God, would you help us to be bold? Would you give us miracles and signs and wonders? Would you help us to be bold? And then when we pick up today, where we left off last week, we see the New Testament church being bold. But their boldness doesn't look like miracles. Their boldness doesn't look like lame people being healed. Their boldness doesn't even look like you would think of maybe when you think of your personal life and boldness and going skydiving or whatever. Here's what their boldness looks like. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all, and there were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was, a, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. What did bold love look like in the New Testament church? It looked like generosity. It looked like a people gathering together and saying, hey, I know you're going through some stuff. Let me come alongside you and help with that. As I look around these sea of faces, there are so many people I could just go through this service alone and just name. And that person came and watched my kids, and that person paid somebody to cut my grass, and that person brought my family a meal, and that person, and I realize I'm the pastor, so maybe I know more people than most of you, but I don't know what I would have done over the last six years for the various things that my family went through if it weren't for all of you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a generous church. Thank you for being a church that wants to practice this. But there's some things in here that I want you to see that I really want you to dig into because what I'm about to talk about is the idol on the American heart. And what I mean by that, in case you don't know what that language means, the idol on the American heart is money. In fact, just the other day, I was eating at a a local pizza restaurant, Magoo's Pizza, Fantastic pizza, by the way. Love their white sauce. Highly recommend it. And uh, I messed up. I ordered from the wrong Magoo's. And so I showed up to get my pizza and it wasn't ready. And he's like, That's because you ordered from the wrong one. I'm like, I'm sorry about that. So generously, the owner made me a new pizza. Didn't even make me pay for the other one. And so we sat and talked while he made it. And he's from Pakistan. He's been in the States a couple decades. And as we just sat and talked and shared life together, I said, What brought you to the States? And here's what he said. He goes, Ah, the American dream. I said, so, look, you live in a completely different context of world. He was in Pakistan and in California. Both are completely different than Indiana. Help me understand understand what that looked like for you before you got here. And he said, oh, you know, for me, it just looked like um, uh, having more resources and more opportunities. And I said, well, have you found the American dream to be all that you promised? And he said, meh, it's all the same. You have no money at the end of the month. (laughs) You're probably right. We live in a nation that is known around the globe for being the land of opportunity and the land of resources. People are leaving their countries to come here, and there is great opportunity and great resources here. But the downside to that, the downside to that is that we live in a culture that says more is happiness. Okay, just just think for your own life. Nobody else. Don't worry about your neighbor or don't worry about me or anybody else. Do you often find you are dissatisfied with what you have? And you may say, no, 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 that's not me. When was the last time you bought new clothes, not because you needed them, but because you, had, you wanted them? Don't get me wrong. It's not a bad thing. My wife recently bought me this colt shirt, which I thought would be appropriate since Peyton's retiring. It's just a good yes. setup. When was the last time you bought a new car, not because yours was dead? It was time to trade it in. Not a bad thing, just a reality. When was the last time you sold and upgraded your house? Or when was the last time you changed out something in your house? Not because it wasn't working, but because you didn't like the look of it. Not a bad thing. But we live in a culture that tells you more is where you'll find happiness, and it works temporarily. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that over time, it fails you. So the New Testament church comes together and they say, you know what, what if everything we had was actually a gift from the Lord to be used by him and for him? And so the way it works is people are coming up. You got to know, and their culture totally different. So in this at this time, it's almost completely Jews who are coming to faith in Jesus. The gospel has not really yet spread to the Gentile nations, and because of that, people are walking away from the Jewish faith, and they're saying we're going to put our faith the Messiah because he is the fulfillment of everything we've been told about our faith. And as they're doing that, many of them are cut off from their families, from their jobs. Some are even kicked out of their homes. And so the New Testament church is going, you are now in my family, even though your birth family has disowned you, come into my home. I will provide food for you. I will provide shelter for you. I will literally sell this extra house or land or thing that I own to care for you. And it's a no wonder that it says in Acts over and over and over again. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You'd want to be a part of a church like that, wouldn't you? The question is, how do we become a church like that? We have a a core value, you might call it around here, just something that we want to live by. We call it generosity. It's pretty simple, but here's how we define it. Generosity. Leveraging God's resources for the benefit of others. We literally, as a church, we talk and we teach and we view everything we have as from God's. It was just within the last few weeks that around 1,000 teenagers from the Midwest came here to Kingsway for a conference. And many of our worship team and our tech and, and, our, and our facilities people, security, gave of their own time and their own energy to show up and make sure this event happened. And they didn't ask to be paid for it. It was my understanding anyway. If I'm wrong, correct me, somebody. This past weekend, we had 100, over 120 teenagers here, 7th through 12th grade, I believe, here in our building. And there were 32, I think, or 36 volunteers from here at Kingsway who came and slept on a floor so they could pour into your teenagers for the weekend and show them the love of God. Last week, Chris Fowler came up here with one of our missionaries and talked about um, with the great work that's going on at Haitian Christian Mission. And we had almost 100 people show up for the lunch that afternoon. Then he also told you, we're trying to get 100 kids picked up in sponsorship. And we had, so far, 76 kids picked up. Praise God for that. You might think about stepping up. You can clap for that. Every year at Kingsway, we give 20% of the dollars that come in. We send them out to missionaries and ministries all around our community and around the world. We help people through all kinds of benevolence and counseling issues. And those are your dollars that you're giving. Here's the thing I could say. If you're visiting with us today or you've been visiting with us and you're curious, like, is this church like so many churches you see on TV or is this church real? And I could tell you, we aren't there yet, but we're on our way. I'm very proud of you guys. I'm so thankful. But here's the thing. That there's a principle in church leadership that they teach you, and it's usually called the 80-20 principle. And the 80-20 says 20% of the people do 80% of the work, 20% of the people do 80% of the giving. Our percentage is, is higher than that. I don't know exactly know what it is. Maybe it's a 60-40 principle or the 40-60. I don't know, but it's not the 100-0 principle, and I want it to be. I want to be that kind of church described in the book of Acts that says, what I have isn't mine, and I'm going to trust God with it. I love this quote by N.T. Wright. He's a New Testament scholar. He says this. What you do with money and possessions declares loudly what sort of community you are. And the statement made by the early church's practice was clear and definite. No wonder they were able to give such powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. They were demonstrating that it was a reality in ways that many Christians today, who often sadly balk at even giving a tithe of their income to the church, can only dream of it's a question to ask yourself ready am i serving god's church with my time and money and only you know the answer i do not look at what everybody gives i don't so you don't have to worry like if you're ever in a conversation with me it's funny i could tell what somebody thinks that i know because they'll start talking to me about something going up or going down and i'm like i don't thank you you know i don't have a clue but praise god for that And I say that because you don't have to worry, like, what does Matt think of me? We walked down the hallway. Does he know we've been through a hard time? Does he know I lost my job? Does he know I took a pay cut? Look, I don't know. I love you. No matter what, I love you. But I love you so much, I want what's best for you. And the gospel teaches us, the gospel teaches us to give sacrificially for what God is doing. So now, let's imagine for a moment that there was a church where people gave so generously. They were so transformed by the love of Christ that they literally, literally viewed their possessions as God's to be used for his glory. And they actually, like the New Testament church, brought it to the appointed leaders and just trusted them to do what they believed was best with it. Could you imagine such a church? And the reason most of us can't imagine such a church today is because why? Government has so poorly mismanaged the budget. I don't care what president it is. We are, what, at $14 trillion? We have companies like Enron or others who have so mismanaged and mishandled your funds. There's been priests and pastors who have done such a poor job. Scandals galore. We find it so hard to trust anybody today. And that doesn't even matter that your pastor here at Kingsway has made plenty of mistakes. So why trust? Why trust anybody? Well, trust was no different in the New Testament church. In fact, it didn't take long in the story. By the time we get to Acts 4, everybody's generous, selling things and giving, and then you've got Barnabas, the son of encouragement. By the time we get to Acts 5, people are already abusing trust. Let me tell you part of the story. I'll read part of the story. You can go read it later. The story is intimidating. So there's a couple. Their name is Ananias and Sapphira. They got together to conspire, a plot. So for those of you who grew up in the church, that was a song. But anyway, a bad one at that. And Ananias and Sapphira, they saw all the praise going to Barnabas. They saw all the great deeds everybody else is doing. I mean, my goodness, Barnabas makes it into the annals of scriptures for all the great things that he did. And they, maybe, we don't know, but maybe they thought to themselves, I want a pat on the back too. So they sold some stuff. They go to Peter and they bring him some of the money. And they say to Peter, we sold some stuff just like Barnabas or just like these others. And here's all the money. And Peter says, that's all the money? And Anani- Ananias says, yeah, yeah, that's the husband. Yeah, 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 that's all of the money for the proceeds. And here's what Peter says next, Acts chapter 5, verse 4. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Welcome to Kingsway. (laughs) And everyone who heard about it was terrified. You think? The next thing that happens in the story is the same thing happens to his wife, Sapphira. So she's not with him that day. She comes in, and Peter looks at her and says, I was told that you sold some stuff. Sold some land, it's a property. Here's the money. Is this all of it? Yes, that's all of it. Why have you done this? Why are you trying to trick and deceive and lie? Why are you mishandling this thing called mercy? Why are you doing that? And then he says, the same men who carried out your husband are here to carry you out too, and she dies. I can say a few things real quick to at least put you at ease and cause attention at the same time. I have been lied to and deceived by many people over my years in ministry, and none of them have died in my presence. That should give you some element of peace. And the reason I say that is this is not the normal practice. The church is lied to and deceived all throughout the New Testament. But in these early days, in these first few chapters of the book of Acts, the church is in a very delicate position. And if God were to allow this kind of deception to be carried on... Usually, the reason we know people's names in the book of Acts is because they're a leader in the church. If God would allow leaders in the church to deceive the church, the church would have never gotten off the ground. The whole thing would have died. And so God judged Ananias and Sapphira right there. My friend Aaron Brockett up at Trader's Point, I love him. Uh, He preached on this last September, so I listened to his sermon to see what he did with it. And Aaron made a bold statement that he believes that Ananias and Sapphira are still in heaven. I would I don't know what I would say to that, to be honest. I would never even thought about it, so I heard him say, so here's what I know. The Bible doesn't say they are or they aren't, so I can't declare one way or the other. I would have a strong problem believing that God would judge somebody so strongly on earth, and yet their salvation was secure. Not because you can sin your way out of salvation, but I would just question where their heart was in the first place. And here's the thing about all of us. What I just expressed to you was a lack of trust. If you've been lied to or deceived throughout your life, you carry the baggage of lack of trust, don't you? You question everything that's said to you. You question the way it was said to you, whether they really meant it or not. And I get it. So many people have been untrustworthy that it's hard to trust. And I also know this. The sinful human heart will often abuse grace and mercy. I can promise you, if you follow in the footsteps of Jesus and you choose to love and show mercy and grace, you will get taken advantage of. It is going to happen if it hasn't already. So then what do you do? Do you just not love? Do you just not give mercy or grace? Do you just choose never to trust again? That's it. I'm going to protect myself by never putting myself out there. Or Do you walk into the mess, do you walk into the pain, and do you just let God handle it? In the New Testament, if you were to keep reading, and I've only I've only grabbed three examples, but there's many. In the New Testament, this principle becomes a problem throughout the New Testament church. Love and mercy has so filled these churches where the gospel goes out. But over time, people start taking advantage of the love and the mercy and the grace. And so naturally what happens to all of us is the church becomes hardened and calloused and judgmental. In fact, as I told you through the book of Revelation a few months ago, even the church in Ephesus, this is a problem. And Jesus rebukes him and says, you've fallen from your first love. Return to the height where you were. Go back to loving each other. And stop turning an eye, kind of a stink eye at each other. I think that's what he said in the Greek. Stop looking at each other sideways and judging each other's motives and just go back to loving each other. Let me just show you three real quick ones. So in the church in Thessalonica, so we get the book of First and Second Thessalonians, Paul has planted a church there and he's working with them and he writes these books to the leaders in Thessalonica to call them out. Now the church of Thessalonians is so passionate with love for the Lord. They're literally, literally waiting for him to return at any moment, which is where we get one of these passages about what happens when the Lord returns in a twinkling of an eye. They're so excited about Jesus returning that they stop working as if Jesus could come back in 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 years, and they literally stop working. They get lazy. So Paul has to write an entire book saying, stop abusing the love and the mercy of everybody else in the church who has to give extra to take care of you and get a job and work hard. Here's his actual word, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Now, just stop there before we move on. This is important because what Paul just said is there is the law of love. That's the only law that's out there. However, the law of love still has right and wrong actions to it. There's nothing wrong with saying to a person, if you call yourself a believer and you're not willing to work or get a job, you don't eat. It's biblical. Notice what he says next. Yet, we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work, and meddling in other people's business. We command, hear the strong language here, we command such people and urge them, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to settle down and work to earn their own living. And every parent with a 25 or 30 year old kid living in their basement said, Thank you, Jesus, for a text. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, hear this, never get tired of doing good. Do you hear the tension in the text? Paul is now calling out those who are lazy in the body, and he's saying, get a job. Take part in the work of God. Do not just mooch off everybody else. But then he says to the rest of the church, but don't stop loving just because people abuse it. Just because somebody might not be trustworthy, just because somebody has proven they are are not trusting, you shouldn't put an investment in them, do it anyway. Why do it anyway? Because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes you have to froke, even when it doesn't add up and it doesn't make sense and you can't see the results and you don't know where it's going, you have to do it anyway. Here's another one, another example in the book of First Timothy, there's a guy named Timothy. First Two books there, First and Second Timothy, Paul writes to a young minister. He's been mentoring this guy. And he sent Timothy to some churches. One of them is a church in Ephesus. And in the church in Ephesus, he got problems. So they've created a ministry of care to help widows because in that culture, men made all the money. So if you were a widow, you had a problem. Because there was nobody to make money and support you. So the church began programs, ministries, to help the widows. But the problem is, just like in every situation where love and mercy is reigning, the widows are taking advantage of it. And so what's happening in the church there that Timothy's working with is we have widows who have kids and have resources, but their kids aren't taking care of them. Instead, their kids are saying, well, it's not my problem. It's the church's problem to love. And Paul comes along and says, wait a minute. That's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to help those who cannot help themselves. We are pulling our funds, collecting our funds together to help those who need help who don't have any other access. If they have a son, if they have access to resources, you tell them to step up and take care of mom. No matter how annoying she is. I may have added that part. But anyway, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, and also verse 8. Paul actually says this. Take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, which extends to mothers and mothers-in-law have denied, hear this, the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. Do you hear the strength of what Paul is communicating? Now some of you, this is very real. This may be the faith-stroking analogy you walk away from today. Because some of you say to yourselves, you don't understand. My my mom, the relationship there. My stepmom, the relationship there. My Mother-in-law, the relationship there, whatever it is, and you may say, and what Paul is saying is, man, if you really love God, it won't matter whether you believe that they deserve it. It won't matter whether you believe you can trust them. If you love God, sometimes you just do the right thing because it's the right thing and it pleases God. I know I'm touching on a whole bunch of nerves right now. Here's the third one. These are just three examples. There's tons of them. In Ephesians, in the church in Ephesus, I told you, in Revelation, they're, they're just amazing. In fact, if you read the book of Acts later, what we find is the church, church of Ephesus, when they come to faith that Jesus, they literally go burn their magic books, their uh, witchcraft and incantation books, to the tune of tens of thousands, possibly even hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stuff. They just burn it. They're so excited about Jesus, they don't care about stuff. But over time, they start to fall away from that initial passion, and they start to get selfish, and they start to look at each other sideways, and they actually have people in their midst who've snuck in among them, and they are not doing well in fact here's what he says Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 he says if you are a thief quit stealing instead use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need now this is huge notice what Paul didn't do notice the example of love Paul didn't say if you're a thief you're an idiot you can't love Jesus you're not going to heaven did he judge them No, but did he rebuke them? Yes. He just looked and said, look, if you're a thief, just stop stealing. Now, this is what's crazy. We don't often talk about stealing in here because stealing is one of those things that everybody knows is wrong, and yet I know in every single service there are people in here who are stealing. I don't know if you're a kleptomaniac and you just have like a, a mental attachment to the adrenaline rush or if there's a legitimate need and you just are embarrassed, you can't swallow your pride and ask for help. But Paul's words are strong for you. You could be stealing money or resources from your company. You could be stealing from the government by not paying taxes. Jesus is clear on that one. You may not like it. suck it up. But if you're stealing, would you stop and then go get a job? Why? So you can actually contribute to the generosity of the gathering of believers. See, when Jesus defines love, he starts to put hands and feet on it. It's not just a list of rules. There's not just condemnation or judgment for the thief, but there's hope. Look, if you follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then act like him. Don't take advantage. Change the way other people view trust by being trustworthy is what he's saying. Become a person that others could say, okay, I didn't trust you a month ago, but I trust you today because you are different. It brings up a question, though. With this kind of abuse of love, what do we do? What do we do? Paul addresses this one too. Paul says, yep, people are going to abuse you, yes. People are going to take advantage of you, yes. It's going to happen. People are going to make mistakes. They may not even mean for it to happen. It's going to happen. So what do you do? And he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Now, just pay attention to what he's saying here. Teach those who are rich. Don't be proud. Don't trust in your riches. Know that where it came from, it all came from God. Everything you have came from God. You give the glory to him. And he gave it to you for you to enjoy. But he knows, he knows one of the greatest joys of life is not getting more, buying more of the great American dream. One of the greatest joys in life is giving it away. In fact, so much so that Jesus said it this way. It's better to give than to receive. I don't think Jesus just meant in the heavenly bank account. Well, it's better if you give, because then in heaven I'll give you more credit. He actually says that, by the way. I think he actually means it feels better. It is more rewarding to give than to take. That's why he goes on and he says this. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need always being ready to share with others by doing this they us will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life true life won't be found in getting true life will be found in giving that's right out of the scriptures that's why some of you are here today because you're looking for life and you can't find it and you're chasing it in circles and you don't know why you keep coming up empty. Maybe it's because God's calling you to be more generous and less selfish. So what I want to do is just give you three pieces of advice. How do I do this? How do I do this? I picked an acronym because I hate acronyms, just like I hate alliteration, so I'm just driving myself crazy, teasing myself with my own outline. But I don't have it in your notes. This is just for me. I want you to remember the word "fooey." Because most of you are sitting there thinking, this is a bunch of fooey. I knew it. I'd show up at church, and all they'd want is my money. But we're going to spell fooey wrong. So fooey. the first word is F, first. The thing you have to do first is you have to plan to put God first. Put God first. This is taught throughout the Bible. Jesus actually says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I will make sure all your needs are taken care of. So the question for all of us is not what's the right thing to do, but do we trust Jesus when he says what he says? First, you, for phooey, the you, is used. Not get used, but plan to be used by God. Plan to be used by God. Here's what I mean by that. Most of you are so cash strapped that even if God came to you and said, I want you to be generous here, you probably couldn't do it. You have too much credit card debt, you have too many loans, you, have, you bought too big of a house or too much of a house, and so you don't have the flexibility to do all that God might call you to do. So change that. Take some active steps. Plan to be generous. One of the ways, I've said this before, my wife and I carry this out, we just take money every paycheck and we stick it in the bank account, and then it's like fun day. day. So, the other day, I was out trying to get some creative ideas, and we're trying to do some things around here. We're trying to spend as little money as possible, get some better furniture, or some knickknacks, or things like that. And I'm, I found some chairs on great sale here in town. I'm like, take a picture, send it to staff members, like, oh, Rachel and I will buy these for the da da da. Can we do that? Like, do you want these? And then it didn't work out. I have bad taste in furniture. But anyway, <laughs> man, I gotta tell you, My wife and I have a blast when we look in our gift account and there's money in there, especially when there's hundreds of dollars, not like 50 bucks. We buy meals for people. We buy date nights for people. We've bought vacations for people. We've sent people places. We've bought people marriage conferences. It is so much fun to bless other people and then to see the fruit of the reward of how that plays out in their life and to stand back and say, we didn't do it all. God did it, but we got to play a little part. I'm just telling you, if you will plan to be used by God, he will use you. And then number three, number three, this is my why, so fooey. First, used, and then the why is yes, yes. Just plan up front to say yes. Don't plan on being argumentative. Don't worry about getting taken advantage of. Don't worry about whether or not God does it or is from God or not from God. Just plan, just plan to say yes. And then when God brings you something and the Holy Spirit tugs on your heart and you say, I don't know, God, I don't know if I can afford it, I don't know if I can whatever. You just say, yes, God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust you. You're going to provide. You're going to give me everything I need for my enjoyment. And so, God, I'm going to just simply say yes. Because when we become a people of yes as it relates to our resources, the world will know that we're his disciples. So I'm going to close with this. Uh, there's a man at our church. He, um, his name is Al Hopkins. I don't know if you guys know Al's story. Al's right now, probably over in a room with a bunch of kids. What happened was Al lived locally recently in an apartment complex, and he saw a bunch of kids running around, and uh, he, he just saw them doing some stuff, and he would ever say, hey, what do you guys do for fun? And they said, nothing. And he knew a bunch of young men getting in trouble together, <laughs> having nothing to do is not a good thing. So he said, I'll tell you what, if I buy a basketball hoop, will you help me put it up? So he literally went to run an errand, came back with a basketball hoop, he put it up. There were about a dozen young men that day, and they've been coming to church with him now for months. The group has swelled to roughly 25 to 30, various kids, students, boys and girls at this point. Some of their parents have come. Many of them you've seen get baptized on our baptism day. There are people who literally make meals and show up and provide food for these kids when they come. He leads a Bible study with some of the families on Saturdays. Literally, we let him use the church van. We let him use a room. We're constantly like, and people are, I know some of you who've been in different services, you're freaking out. People have sent me emails to talk to me. about like, ah, man, sometimes those kids, they're, they're talking to your message or whatever. I'm like, calm down. It'll be okay. We're showing them love. It'll be all right. And I'm so proud of Al and the way others have surrounded him. I'm so proud to be a part of a church who gives generously of their time and of their money. And my challenge to you is, how are you doing? So I am so anxious about this message because I'm about to make two bold asks. Two bold asks. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, yep. My first bold ask, as I've been up, like I couldn't sleep, I was anxious, praying about this. God, give me the, the ability to be bold. My first bold ask is this: some of you have never taken a step of faithfulness towards God in your giving. Would you consider doing a tithe for 90 days? Just 90 days. I promise you this, you will be blessed. Now, I don't know how God's going to do that. I don't know what that's going to mean. I'm not telling you you're going to double your income. I I don't have that ability. I wish I did. But I will promise you, you will be blessed. God actually says that in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi. Would you be willing, if you aren't currently tithing, to step up and start tithing? That's bold ask number one. Bold ask number two. Some of you are already doing this. And for you, here's my ask. So we have a a bit of a budget shortfall. Um, To the tune of, a few hundred thousand dollars. And here's my bold ask. Would you consider giving simply $10 a week more per household between now and the end of the year? Between now and the end of December. $10 a week per household. Roughly $40 to $50 per household. That's it. Not per person, per household. If you would do that, that would allow us in our budgeting process and our planning process coming up to not have to make major cuts in ministries and programming or staffing and those kinds of things. So we're just asking you to generously step up and say, I'm going to skip Starbucks. Well, nowadays, Starbucks, it's once a week, twice a week. I'm going to skip eating out one time a week. And I'm just going to send those funds on to my church and trust them to use them, to spend them on the way that God is leading them best. And I'm asking you not to make this decision right now out of guilt or compulsion. I'm asking you to seek the Lord and pray about it. And if the Lord says yes, then you say yes. Because if you just do the simple math, if roughly 1,500 people each did $10 a week through the end of the year, you could see how that helps tremendously. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you as we go into our communion time. Remember this. The cross of Christ is where the generosity of Christ was shown the most. As you take that bread and as you take that juice, I just want you to pray and say, God, you were so generous, so generous to me. Help me to be a people of love who respond with yes to whatever it is you call me to do and then just to take that bold step. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray for the ministries of Kingsway. I pray for men like Al Hopkins and those you've brought around him, Lord, to work with him in the work that he's doing. Would you even increase his ability, lift those lids, so he can reach even more people, God, than he was reaching before. We thank you for the families, young men and women coming, God, to Kingsway that Al's reached out to in love. Lord, I pray for each and every one of them. May they come to know you and accept you as their Lord and Savior. God, I pray for our missionaries and all those ministries around this county and and all around the world that we serve. God, we thank you for them. Would you continue to use our resources to impact them and empower them? And God, I pray for every single man and woman and child in this room. I pray, God, that we would see and know and experience your love in such a profound way that inspires us to become more generous and not be afraid of being taken advantage of, but to just trust you are God and you are good. We ask all this in Jesus' name.